0: Hello, everyone. My name is Ryan Griggs, and I'm the host of the Renaissance podcast. And today alongside me, i have Wilder from Wild Spaces Farm. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me, Ryan. So to get started, I know we talked yesterday, and it was an awesome conversation. Um, So I, I know that you have been in agriculture since birth. Is that right? Yeah, for the most part. So I guess, can you just talk a little bit about what that experience was like growing up? Um, just being fully immersed in that world.
1: Yeah. So I'm the son of a organic farmer here in Idaho and his name's Nate Jones. He runs King's crown organic farm. He was one of the original, uh, organic farmers here in Idaho. They actually certified, uh, before the USDA ever stepped in and had organic certification. And my mother is, uh, kind of as a cowgirl, uh, cowboy, however you want to put it, uh, trains horses, managed cattle, uh, and was actually responsible for one of the first organic USDA inspected plants in Idaho. She no longer runs cattle, but she's a land steward. And so I kind of had both of these like really good, uh, and influential people in my life that I didn't know were, um, yeah, having a huge impact on how I saw the world and how I saw food. And they never really uh, pushed me in any particular direction. They were always like, you know, you can do whatever you want when you grow up. Um, Schooling might be a good idea. (laughs) And uh, it wasn't until I was kind of out of the coop that I started really reflecting on uh, what it meant to grow food. And as far as work, workload, um, you know, they tried to keep us in sports and not burn us out on the farm or the ranch. And so it was kind of like, if you want to ride around with your dad today and do farm stuff, go ahead. If you want to come to the barn and ride horses, like you can do that. Um, you know, there's lay- leaves that need raked, lawns that need mowed, um, fencing and tree planting and just whatever the seasonality was, as long as it didn't interfere with like school and our other extracurricular So there was never really any like heavy choreing, you know, Five thirty 30 in the morning before you go to school or anything like that it was uh, relatively normal at least that's what they tried to offer
0: interesting so with the organics growing up would your parents talk to you about just that whole world versus just what's been the typical method of agriculture the past few centuries in America.
1: Totally. And I think it was a little bit of a, I know I've had it explained by them with their journey into organics. But, uh, you know, for my father, it was about getting a premium on his product. Getting He he had watched two farm crises, uh, it, one in the late 70s and one in the 80s, um, just put so many neighbors under. So many people folded and, due to the economic constraints of the commodity market. And so he decided he needed to grow a niche crop. And so he definitely entered the organic world for profit. And then, um, this is probably like when I'm a baby or right before I was even born and then they, they start to have these thoughts like, Hey, like if, if the organic world is so good to us for us to like afford our lifestyle and to live, then like, maybe we need to, you know, put our money back into it. So then that's kind of when they had this whole kind of revolution into, into their diet and incorporating the foods, obviously the foods they grew, but now when they went to the grocery store, it was like, Oh yeah, we should get that. It's organic. And so it was kind of this like evolution of like, Oh, it's treated as well. So now we want to buy it. And then as a kid yeah. to, to like, I knew my dad was different, you know, like the other farming kids in school and, and you know, the, the community is really small here. The teachers knew, And so it was always kind of this little, like, and Wilder's dad does it without chemicals. It's like, I don't know. It doesn't seem very revolutionary to me. Like I live with the guy um, and and he he works, he works hard. It's not like he's got some potion or spell or, you know, uh, technology that isn't available to anyone else. He just, you know, does it without chemicals. And so it was just very like apparent from a young age that like there's two types of agriculture, you know, with chemicals and without and that uh that's been really important and and in fact it's made me i refer to myself as a fundamentalist when it comes to uh chemical inputs like i just believe in zero but i do uh, accept that everyone's on a spectrum and a trajectory when it comes to land management and and you get in where you fit in and
0: so i guess fast forwarding a little bit just on the topic of just the the funnel your viewpoint on just no chemical inputs because um, again going back to our previous conversation you were talking about how you were really frustrated around college time with the folks around you and then you went to Costa Rica if you could just talk more on, on that
1: yeah totally so I, I uh, you know being a late being a teenager being 18 17 you know I, I definitely was outgrowing this small town of Idaho, this small town of Idaho this town Glensbury like my my views, my attitude, what I wanted to do, my activities, like everything was just like, this is not the place for me. there's so much more to this world. So, you know, run out there, cast away. I did two years at Northern Arizona, then I uh, Northern Arizona university in Flagstaff. Then I step away from that. I uh, trained horses with my mom for a year, um, stayed a little time in Texas. And then I'm thinking like ah, I gotta I gotta go back to school like I, this is something I started I should finish and so I settled on uh, Montana State for a rangeland ecology program in Bozeman and I'm studying rangeland ecology I get a job at the uh, Boise Food Co-op because I know how to sell my father's organic produce and I can stock shelves and get a good discount on the good food and um, just this. This like food and sustenance and sustainability and like independence just becomes like a really big theme for me. And that uh, you know, like I think it's, you know, every town is like three days of food or something, you know, three days away from a famine. Um, and that stat, you know, is getting like thrown around. And so I've just become really concerned with where my food is produced. And then as I mingle with uh with my peers and other people that are going to school there, it's like across the road, quite literally, you know, the ag science department is teaching just status quo chemical agriculture. And I'm getting in arguments with peers that are gonna go home to their seventh, sixth generation wheat farm in Eastern Montana. And they're just gonna pick it up where their dad left off and like get into crippling debt, use experimental uh, technologies and chemicals and produce a crop that nobody really is getting any nutrition from anyways. And the biggest like uh, grind for, or rub for me is that I know that organic agriculture can be scaled. I've seen it on my father's farmers uh, just under 700 acres. And so I know that it can be done well. So it's not this like, I'm not stuck in this yield scale um, paradigm that everyone else is where it's like, oh, okay, organics only works on an acre. And that really, really frustrated me and then to just see the hypocrisy of of montana state and you can just do a little bit of sleuthing and like you know the wheat farmers of america didn't want genetically modified wheat and montana state in conjunction with monsanto developed genetically modified wheat and then they told them not to release it and then somehow it just like appeared out there in the in the wild you know in their in their research in their research plot so it was like and that was like i don't know five years before i went to school there i'm like I, i'm at an institution that like broke the rules and lied and they're coming out of two sides of their mouth saying you know you range land ecology people should preserve species and promote genetic diversity and then meanwhile they're going to go home and just pick up the the chemical agricultural playbook and so that really frustrated me and i start to just like not go to school scouring the internet for all information on on like how to grow food, how to, uh, per, you know, do biodynamic preparations, what's, you know, like I keep running into the word permaculture over and over and, and holistic uh, resource management, cause that's kind of the like counterculture to typical institutionalized range land ecology. So I'm running into Alan Savory and Joel Salatin and I'm just like eating it up. Anything that the internet has to offer in 2015 regarding like alternative food, I think I watched it. <laughs> I think I was there. And so I decided that I need to go to a permaculture design course in Costa Rica, leave my schooling behind. I think I was trying to convince my parents that like what I was going to go learn was still learning. It just wasn't going to get me a bachelor's. And I left and I did that. And I was in Costa Rica and I was just, you know, tons of uh, forward thinking thoughts about like how I'm going to grow my food, how I'm going to build my house, how I'm going to spend my time and... I'm just start to think like, oh, I need a piece of land. And uh, it dawns on me, like if I could just get over myself and get over the small town of Idaho and maybe the things it doesn't offer to a 20 something year old, like I could really get rooted here and have a huge canvas to implement techniques and do really novel things on the landscape here in Southern Idaho. So I came back and I was like messing around, building rock walls, planting asparagus. And my dad finally was like, you want a job? You know, I run a farm. So I, I, I stepped in, I started, uh, started helping him market produce, distribute, you know, fix fence. I'm kind of like the lead cowboy. He runs a grass fed beef herd. So any, any cattle movement or rearranging or handling, like that's kind of my, my thing. And, and, and then also like been able to incorporate lots of different, um, techniques like adaptive management, grazing, um, integrating, um, just little techniques like, hey, if we're always here, then like we should have some grape plants here. You know, we're always walking by right here. We can eat grapes on the way, you know? So just little stacks that I'm I'm really interested in always making the, like the efficiency uh, or like making the abundance of nature, like efficient and available and close to us in proximity. And that it, it like, you know, we don't have to work too hard. And so I came back to the farm. I was working for him full-time And then I started dating my girlfriend who I'm with currently. And she decided to go to school at university of Montana. And I picked up, uh, and decided to finish my education as well. And rather than go to school at a land grant university, I thought I could go to this other university where they teach forestry and ecology, and I would be able to get an ecological education and not be kind of corrupted by uh, the agribusiness that has infiltrated our institution. So I graduated in 2021 with a bachelor of science in natural resource conservation from the College of Forestry at the University of Montana, and simultaneously was always working back on the farm um, between semesters.
0: So a lot of great stuff. Um, I'm gonna take back to whenever you were first initially having those conversations with the folks at Montana State mm-hmm. with the chemical inputs and just the, the, the conversations and type of teaching. I'm just curious, were they really focusing in on just max efficiency and higher yields? Yeah, well? I mean, I, because I, yeah, kind of like go when, like what you were saying with just the organic, they can't scale and just talking about that because it seems like from my perspective conventional agriculture is just all about efficiency and max yield and it doesn't matter the quality or anything outside of that. Is that in the ballpark?
1: Yeah, totally that, It's that yield um, conversation that, that metric of yield and production is always what's leveraged. I mean that's how you create the propaganda that is we need to feed the world. That's what all agribusiness like they zoom out and they rest on that on that narrative. like we have to feed the world. And that means we need more yield. And it's it's really not about yield, it's about access. It's about the availability to sustenance and the capital that gets you there. And so the conversations I'm having are like, yeah, like it's like this scale thing. I'm like, no, I got it. And then it's like yield and it's like, OK, yeah, like we can't yield the same corn crop, like bushels per acre year after year after year in the same field. But if you take our acreage as a system and you say, we grow 60 to a hundred acres of corn every year, but that corn's always in a different field and always in a crop rotation. Like, yeah, we're running with the best of them. I mean, we have 280 bushel corn with no inputs and the conventional guys might have three, 340, but their cost of production's, you know, through the roof compared to ours. And so it's like, I, I don't see it as like we can't produce enough food because we could produce enough food in you know between the uh, in the median of our interstate from here to Boise, which is sixty three miles away, we could produce enough food in that median for all of the Treasure Valley. But it's not about you know maximizing all of the growing opportunity. It's about maximizing profit for agribusinesses, and so it just is a really slippery slope. And I think if you have that conversation and that's where people are resting is in yield, then it's really hard to get them to come to the other side. But if we decide to have a conversation that's like focused on, um, you know, water infiltration, quality and quantity of water, uh, like equitable work, you know, like, do the farmers enjoy themselves? Are they straddled in debt? Are they healthy or unhealthy? Um, are the migrant workers that, that, work on these farms? Are they happy? Are they taken advantage of? Do they have proper housing? Um, Is the food nutritious? Does it taste good? You know, like these are all qualities and metrics that yield doesn't capture. And in fact, yield compromises nutrition, quality of life, uh, water quality and quantity, and then resource use, you know, like how much phosphorus can we afford to ship all over the country and nitrogen to be produced in uh, energy intensive, nitrogen fertilizer plants to like, justify the existence of, we need more yield. And then when you start to really go down that hole, that rabbit hole of like, we're mostly grown grown corn and soy in this country. A lot of the corn goes to feedlots uh, or to to animals. And then there's a certain amount of corn that goes to ethanol. And and there's a, you know, you can get into that, into that and there's too much ethanol being added to corn almost to a detriment of our vehicles and so there's like corn lobbyists that are pushing that we add and make a minimum of 20 percent corn in your fuel and it's like that's just to sell more corn not to make your engine run better you know i realized we can't use lead and they had to you know come up with a different um additive to make the engine hit correctly for the combustion to work but it's like to think we need 20 percent ethanol is like heinous and that's like my organic chemistry teacher talked about that a lot like we get away with 5 percent ethanol instead we're like pushing the envelope of 10 and above and that's just corn that's like land that could be feeding anything and uh, and then we have the barges we have tons of grain on barges in the ocean for national security and we dump them every year because we don't need them and like so we just grow a bunch of corn gets out there for national security in case something happens when we realize nothing happens every when it probably when the corn crops coming out in the fall we dump all that corn, we fill those barges back up. And it's like, I mean, that's just uh, it's just negligent. You can get into the, you know, there's too many yards and we're planting ornamental trees all through our malls, but like we could do fruit trees, but like nobody wants to step on a rotten apple. So we don't plant fruit trees, you know, and it's just like, there's so much room for feeding us that it like in, in every byway and sidewalk and median yet, we're all focused on what we need to feed the world through the mechanisms that are conventional industrial ag. And that gets real, it's just a sticky, like, I don't know, apples to oranges kind of conversation.
0: No, that's so true. Uh, I'm just thinking of so many different examples too. It made me think of the victory gardens from world war one and world war two. Um, I mean, that's just such a simple thing that we could be able to implement, but then that gets into HOAs and, mm-hmm every yard has to look the same and have there's so much turf. Um, I did a previous podcast with the president of the American honey producers association. He was just mentioning how I, it was either 2020 or 2021 or just one of the recent years, 40% of the population of the, the bees were just decimated. And one easy thing that we could do is just have small gardens in our front yards where they can just pollinate. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I mean, that's just, there's so many little things that we'd be able to do, but there's so many hurdles of just BS, like HOA's to yeah. where, um, Cause even, even something just like chickens and having chickens for eggs in your backyard, you can do that. And a lot of places you're able to do that, but then a lot of places you're not able to, and you're going to have to go through so many hoops and all kinds of hell just for chickens. Um, yeah, it's, it's rather frustrating. Um, totally. So yeah, that, that, I hardly agree with all of that on the topic of whenever you're in Costa Rica, because this is another aspect why I love agriculture. It's very context dependent. Their environment's way different than where I'm at in Texas. It's way different from you in Idaho. So I was just curious. Yeah. What was that experience like? And, um, when you're telling your parents, you're still learning. I'm just curious. Yeah. What were they teaching you and, and just what that experience was like?
1: Yeah. So part of, uh, Part of how I ended up there, and this is what was so interesting, kind of circling back to your original question about like, what was it like to grow up with uh, with my parents is like, I'm kind of between school or I'd come home for a break or something and I'm sleuthing around the house. And I find this, uh, like the original holistic management resource book, it's like gold gilded leaf leaf, uh, pages it's like it's sweet and she was telling me that she went to the original like uh collaborative meetings between like the blm the forest service the wildlife agency the ranchers like out in nevada people got guns on their hips uniforms it's like super abrasive time between like land management agencies and ranchers and environmentalists this is kind of the 90s late 80s when they had this like no cow policy they're trying to get all cows off public land And uh, then you have this guy, Alan Savory, step in and be like, oh, let's, you know, quadruple the stocking rate (laughs) and it'll actually improve the ecological function of the landscape, which is like super contrary. But he had a framework for organizing people and collaboratively getting to cool decisions. So my mom was on the forefront of that. It was really fun. And she had all these awesome resources. And then right next to it, I see Bill Mollison's original permaculture handbook. I mean, I, I, I've I since gave it away and I kind of wish I never had, but it's in good hands and the guy's doing great work, but it, it's like the original Bill Mollison handbook for permaculture and David uh, Holmgren and Bill Mollison came up with it in Tasmania and Australia and coined the term permaculture. And so I go, I'm like, man, what are these books, mom? And she's like, oh yeah, you know, that's all good stuff. And I'm just like, yeah, it's good stuff. This is crazy good stuff. So... I'm, you know, telling them I'm going to go to, the, go to this permaculture design course. And and like, I know my mom's down because I've got secrets out like she knows. And uh, she knows that I know about her, her, her past and being interested in those topics. So I arrived down there and I decided to go through, um, you know, this is one of the hard parts with permaculture. And as I like, I still use the word today. And I think it like, it can rub people the wrong way because like, there's no uh, there's no registered trademark definition or body that disseminates permaculture information. Like you and I can do it. We can start a nonprofit. We can start an LLC. We could be consultants. We could teach people. We could create an e-course. We could create our own book. Rip off everybody else's books. Like it's like this mm, kind of too free uh, type of. I don't know what we want to call it school of thought or something like that. And Bill's mm-hmm. idea was he hated the government and he hated patents. So he never trademarked it. He just didn't want that to happen to permaculture. And for better or worse, you have a lot of like phonies and uh, or cheap kind of rip offs into it. And so you got to always be really skeptical with like when someone says they're a permaculture designer or a consultant, you know, really make, kind of find out what the lineages are. Cause it's kind of like a little pyramid scheme, not a scheme, but a, there's been a pyramiding effect, you know, these two guys started it, they have a school, this guy's got a school, this guy's got a school out of there. And so you kind of like can retrace the family of permaculture to the like the big guys. And, uh, and it's really cool that you can do that, but you kind of have to be pretty thorough. So I landed on this guy by the name of Scott Pittman. And Scott was out of New Mexico, offering a course in New Mexico and two in Costa Rica. And I had been to Costa Rica once when I was a kid. And so I was like, really down to go back. And that course was actually offered at an ashram, which was like, a really important part of what Scott was trying to get to is that like, you can like, build your house out of clay and you can grow your own garden and, you know, have a solar panel or whatever it might be, you know, milk your family cow, you can like get there to your like, peak sustainability, but you live with people like we live, we live in, in proximity to people, we're social animals. And so like the institutions that have lasted the longest on earth are monasteries and ashrams. And like, whether that's like a celibacy thing, or because it's the pursuit of the spiritual, like this higher spiritual effort, like these structures have lasted the longest. And so near the end of the course, they talked a lot about invisible structures. And that's like, how you set up your finance. Uh, if you have a business, how you set up your business and then, and then how you live in a community, you know, like, can we make, um, creatively adaptive understanding HOAs because an HOA is an invisible thing. We can't like grab it and touch it, but it's a structure that we exist within. And so it's kind of like Scott's attempt near the end of his career to be like, Hey kids look one, you should meditate and figure out your shit. And two, uh, you're going to have to live with people. You can't like find all your sustainable sustenance and then like exile the world. And I think like the homesteader movement finds that out, or at least that's kind of what I ran into on social media recently is like the homesteaders realized that they can't do everything. And now they want to live in a community of homesteaders where one guy does bees, one guy does strawberries, you know, one gal does textiles. So it's like, we need that integrated, um, relationships amongst all producers. And that was the big theme of why he did it at the ashram and the ashram had been set up and designed by him and his colleague, like 10 years prior. So you got to like, see it functioning. You know, you, you can go out in the forest and pick up like on most elements of permaculture on accident, which is bizarrely cool of nature to do that. But to see, uh, a site intentionally developed like from its inception with all of these earthworks and like logistical effortlessness um, functions all around you. It was really incredible to walk through that. And so we learned a lot about gardening, learned a lot about natural building and uh, a lot about observation and finally about invisible structures and how to exist in this world.
0: So for the listeners, I know that regenerative agriculture, the term itself has just really been picking up a lot of steam and through that people will eventually probably hear about permaculture, permaculture, but for the folks that this is the first time they've ever heard of that term. And I know you're mentioning that there, it was not uh patent pending and it's a, it's a rather free term. How would you best describe permaculture?
1: Yeah, it is a, it is a framework for understanding the world and existing within that world with nature or as nature as your guiding uh, teacher. That's, it's a, it's so, it's so hard. It's so hard to define because everybody defines it a little differently, but I really do think it's about like accepting that, like it, if we're just going to think about all, like, if we want to talk about building soil, like if we want to talk about soil health and building soil, or we want to talk about water retention, or uh, the best way to heat and cool a home, or feed yourself, like, and living in temperate climates or near the equator, like we have just a, we have some ethics and then we have some principles, and using those ethics with those principles, we come up with a framework of how we understand the world. And there's lots of and it's like really cool i have, i subscribe to the permaculture magazine it's just i don't know it's interesting I've, it's like my second time i've subscribed i kind of like had it went without it for a couple of years not back into it and uh there's some good there's some always good information in there but it's really interesting to see that like it kind of has like trickled out of just gardeners and farmers and homesteaders and there's out there there's people out there trying to figure out how to you know where to put the water cooler in their office because it does make sense somewhere. Better and then hey we should turn it from a you know a water cooler to a Berkey filter like there's just those little things all the time and I think it's uh it's like you could do the same thing with regenerative regenerative as principles and you could probably apply those principles throughout your life um, in 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 different contexts.
0: No, that makes a lot of sense. Transitioning the, the topic a little bit, you were mentioning how when you first came back that you were helping your father with with marketing and, and, and things like of that nature. Whenever, because I worked on a farm last fall and I worked the farmer's markets and I remember having conversations with folks as to why our corn was a dollar more than the neighbors and just having to have those conversations because the neighbors did it conventionally so they sprayed everything and ours, no spraying, tilling. It, it was not necessarily termed regenerative or organic or anything, but. Used all of the similar practices and, and principles. I was curious, just from working on on yours with organic, what the marketing was like and how. Yeah, I, I know it's a very vague question, but how would you go about the marketing of that from an organic standpoint and just people's viewpoints on price points for food?
1: Yeah, prices is such a uh, incredible conversation, and so as far as like the marketing branding side of things my father being a pioneer he has a like his farm has a legacy that like i don't have to really convince anyone i do cold call uh retailers from time to time especially when like the melons are peaking and there's just too many um but i have like established relationships and so it's more about like getting it off of his you know he's like texting grocers and restaurant uh owners or chefs and i'm just like hey like give that to me you know like let's let's make it a little more electronic, uh, or it's going to be electronic, but let's just make it easier. And it doesn't have to be on your phone when you're trying to do a million other things. So there's kind of like this, like uh, logistical efficiency thing that I was trying to take from him to make it easier so that he can just exist, do whatever the heck he decides to do for the day. And so, um, with that, because he's always certified organic since he started for 30 years now, it's been 30 years. Um, or maybe it's 33 years, 33 years that like, that's what we're leaning on and they know us, especially in Idaho when it comes to local. So there's always like a, it's pretty easy when I talk to my retailers uh, or wholesale accounts rather. And so then to, but we do do farmer's markets. We go to two a week, one in Boise, one in the Sun Valley area. And uh, you know, conversations around price are, always fascinating and i if someone wants to take the time to actually listen to why i would price a particular product a certain way it's like for me it's always about like we're capturing all the cost of producing that product and that so many of the products we see in the store have not adequately captured the cost and that can be um like little it's pennies but it can be like hey Uh, We harvest our tomatoes ripe, and a store doesn't. They're probably hydroponic, but assuming that they weren't, just hothouse early harvested tomatoes, like they all travel together and ripen together in the box, and there's potentially less shrink. I think it's a less enjoyable eating experience, but less of them go bad. And so when we're harvesting ripe, and one's almost too ripe, and it gets in the box, and it gets squished, and now it's shrunk, like there's loss there in order to get you the best eating experience. And, you know, the big farms out of the San Joaquin Valley, like they don't have that. They, they're doing like their scales way up. They can afford shrink. They're uh, probably not paying everybody uh, adequately enough. And then they're shipping it all over the country before it's even ripe. And so we're not existing there, you know? And so like, and we, feel all the real costs. And I, and I'm not saying these operations don't like, I know like veggie farmers are not subsidized, whether you're conventional, big or small, like we don't really subsidize tomato growers, but, um, it's always a conversation about like, you're like adequately paying for water. You know, I always tell people with watermelon, I'm like, this thing's water. You're paying for water, like water costs money. So don't be fooled that the watermelon, the conventional water, like seedless conventional watermelon is 49 cents a pound and mine's 75 cents a pound. Like you're actually paying for Idaho water that is going to be cycled right here. You're going to go use the restroom like that water stays here and you're buying it. And like you can pay more for less water if you go buy a bottle of Nestle water out of a plastic bottle that who who knows where it came from and what aquifer it's depleting and what people got marginalized on the way. And so it's for me, it's always this like where you've got our true cost understood and there's like, we're not shoveling it off onto anybody else. We pay for our water. We pay to rent the land. We pay for the people who work for us. We pay for the boxes. We pay for the fuel to get it here. And it's all structured right there in the price of our tomato or corn or melon. And so it's uh, I don't know if I've given you like a real straight answer, but I'm always trying to express that like the true cost of the environment and to the world is captured in the cost of our product, and we hey, want it to be cheap. Picture. Yeah. Yeah. Like we don't that's want to funny. outprice just, people.
0: Yeah, I always just find that fascinating too. That with organic or with food that's higher price point people just think they're getting ripped off and that you're just making tons and tons and tons of money off these folks. And, Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I just find that fascinating. Yeah. I was reading. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt. Well, I was just going to say, I was reading Will Harris's book earlier today and he was talking about whenever he was first changing to fully grass fed beef and how he would have to go to Publix and do kind of food tastings to, to, incentivize people to start buying theirs because they were the first ones to really do that. And he was just talking about just the conversations as to why theirs was pricier and how folks just thought that the beef that they're buying was fully grass fed. And you know, that the labels that they were reading are are just all true. Uh, it's just interesting. There's so much that goes into the pricing, but then also just from the consumer standpoint, of this, their train of thinking, and um, yeah, I don't know. Where I'm going with that. It's just interesting how our viewpoint of food and, and price points, and just the business standpoint, how it's just so warped, and how yeah. if you've never seen what goes into farming and you see expensive food, I don't know. It's just wild to me that some people think that these farmers are just making an insane load of money off these folks and they're just not doing any work (laughs) yeah Uh, yeah
1: yeah there's always you know there's that the good little saying like you can pay the farmer now or the pharmacist later you know and i think that like one fascinating thing that we've been surrounded with regarding price especially post uh pandemic well during the pandemic but then especially post and this is a i think an interesting thing and I'll know more like when I control my, my father's books, like I'm surely to inherit, inherit the farm, but like we can, we consistently underpriced the conventional wholesale potato price last year, all season long through the winter, because they're forced to capture their actual costs. I mean, we all are and we're capturing our actual costs coming up with a price and it's like consistently 10 to $12 under the conventional market value. And so it's like, Hmm. we're like, we're, you know, like the, it's like, I know Will talks about it, like that his beef is cheaper. And that like, we're coming around to it with a different crop, which is potatoes and onions. And that like, when you have a commodity like potatoes, where it's, you know, this is fascinating about potatoes, but most of them are, most of them are grown on contract most of them go to processors, um, determined French fries for McDonald's or freezing for the center of the grocery store. And then you have fresh pack, fresh packs like you and I want to go buy potatoes at the store and fresh packs like struggles to have it available all the way. And I think like more and more we're, we're finding out in July and June that like this fresh pack thing is like one underappreciated. So it's, uh, there's not enough supply and like, they start like the potato thing. It's so cool. It's so interesting. But like they started buying seed potato to cut up into French fries because the demand is so high and that affects the price. So then that makes the price of potatoes next year go up because now you're cutting into this, the seed stock because the potato seed is just a potato. And so they're doing that to themselves. They've got like, you can't go to the grocery store. And like everybody's eating fast food during the pandemic and, but simultaneously they're like throwing food away because like, I don't know, whatever hysteria, or they can't get to it. And so you just like have this weird thing where like the processors are demanding more money than, or offering more money than they ever had. People are growing potatoes based on contracts. So you don't really step in, grow potatoes on the open market. You just grow potatoes when you know you have a contract for them. So you don't have anybody being like adventurous anymore, which used to be a really big thing. And that does saturate markets and decrease price. But there was all these interesting, incredible factors that all just like came into play. And all of a sudden it's like, hey, conventional Yukon potatoes are 35 50 a case. And like I'll wholesale them for 30 and organic. And it's just like, we've arrived. We've arrived with a with a mid-scale farm can like correctly contextualized in Southern Idaho. We're not trying to do this, like, you know, somewhere where it doesn't make sense. We've got the water, we've got the land, we've got the the talent and the ability and the know-how and the infrastructure. And our cost is this, and yet, oh, look, here's all the big players and they're coalescing all their product into these sellers. And then they're packing them in this warehouse and their cost is just higher. And then you get back around to the summer when the storage crops are, you know, they're in deep free or uh, they're in cold storage, they're coming out, the supply is dwindling, and now they're not even available on the shelf. The price has to go up to, to meet the lack of, of supply. And you enter into the harvesting season again, the price is high because there hasn't been any product. And uh, that doesn't affect our style because we don't have cold storage into the summer. We just start harvesting potatoes. We know our price from our labor and our, uh, all, all of our other expenses. And we're just able to consistently the last two, the last two years be under the conventional market and the conventional market eventually gets saturated because like the Washington growers start to harvest and the main growers and, and the Colorado growers, but there's these little windows where like, we're more affordable and it's like, it's part of the revolution.
0: I'm curious on how... Do you, in terms of just strategy, because for, with agriculture and food and and just the pricing as well, it varies drastically and there's just so many variables that go into it all. How do you strategize for the following year and just planning out what you're, what all you're planting and how much of each crop that you're, you're planting, how do you, manage that with just balancing everything that you're currently doing and the rest of the year. Cause, and then there's also all these uncertainties that could potentially happen with agriculture, um, with weather, any other things that, uncertainties that can really affect the business. Yeah. I guess how do you strategize it around just that and especially for the upcoming year? Cause with agriculture, there's a lot of patience. you have to, you plant and then you just, you, you're not getting your food right the next day per se. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, I'm just curious how you and your father and and your family go about that. Yeah. The, the
1: forecasting is, um, always, you know, remains within our context of like what we, what will grow here, what we have grown, what is in demand and that we, and when it comes to what we have grown, that includes like the infrastructure and the labor. Um, and so we're always kind of balancing like. You know are the guys coming back to work next year will we have them and and if that's the case like we could probably continue on with what we currently do but we have a crop rotation that our organic system plans requires and so we have to always not get greedy and be like oh because this is what, like what happens over and over again it's just such a silly story but like you know they like, nobody grows enough alfalfa, alfalfa price is super high. Then next year, everybody prints alfalfa and the alfalfa price just plummets. And it's like, and then because nobody, everybody turned alfalfa or acreage into alfalfa and not enough into potatoes, now the potato market's high. And so, but you can't get out of alfalfa because it's a perennial crop and the seed costs a lot. And you need to make your return over time. So you can't just back out into potatoes to capture the market. And it's just this like silly, silly game. So, for us like we don't get involved in too many contracts we have our beans contracted we do dry edible beans like pintos reds or blacks or great white northerns and those legume crops like we're going to grow the variety that the mills said they wanted or not the mill but the processor and so um, used to do business with amy's kitchen still do business with eden's food hummingbird Azure your standard um they're great uh relationships but we aren't just going to grow a bunch of beans for the open market. And then like beans are, uh, uh, they take some talent, especially organically. And so it's not something that you want to find out that you, you grew 40 acres of beans on the open market and had a wreck. Like that's uh, not going to be a good thing for the finance of the farm. And so beans are under contract, potatoes and onions, this like kind of ebb and flow where we see what we sold. Uh, But we have to like really reconcile with um, what we have labor wise, you know, and so we we hand weed onions and the crew has been doing it for my dad for like 30 years. And they're, you know, they're getting old, they're getting, you know, they have grandkids and kids and they went to school and they're in college and like, they're not coming back to pull weeds. And it's a crew, it's a seasonal crew. They're not like full-time employees, but regardless if the community doesn't have that labor pool, then that needs to be our signal as well so we're kind of like i just see i have a cow out that's pretty fascinating uh have uh we have less you know we're kind of growing a little less onions uh, but we're also experiencing a a high demand locally for our potatoes so we're kind of like kind of pushing like hey what's what's 10 more rows what's one more acre um, of potatoes going to mean for like the labor on us the storage on us and then our ability to market them and corn We grow some organic corn for an organic dairy down the road and that's just like such a silly silly conversation that my dad has with that guy every year and it's like it's always going to be cheaper for him to drive 40 miles and get it from us than trying to get it from anywhere because they'll import organic corn you know from romania and so it's always going to be cheaper right down the road and they typically talk about what the price was last year what the price is forecasted for this year and meet somewhere in the middle and then alfalfa is a really important crop uh, financially. Unfortunately, I, I don't really appreciate growing very much of it because it, it does go to organic dairies like the corn and, um, but it can be just like, it can be a home run. And so that's a really tough one. But like I said earlier, you know, it's a, it's a costly speed, costly seed and it's a perennial crop. So you've got to, you know, not get too greedy because the market can become saturated and the price can fall out and uh and just yeah get in where it's right so it's always this like what we've done before while also adhering to the crop system plan so sometimes the crop system plan will just be like you're not gonna you don't have the acres to grow more than 60 acres of corn this year or 40 in some like I think two years ago we only grew 40 acres, and but then this year we grew 80. So it's kind of like what's coming out, what's going in, really tells us what we can do. And we always, you know, fantasize about like, oh, we should grow a bunch of carrots, you know, but like we don't have, (laughs) we don't have a line to clean them, we don't have a uh, implement to harvest them, we don't have squat. So we we can't get too excited about doing things we've never done on the row crop setting. With the vegetable garden, Mm -hmm. it's about an acre. Very highly diverse melons, sweet corn, cucumbers, peppers, zucchini, tomatoes. Um, that kind of ebbs and flows with, with what we know we did last year, and we're not trying to like go to a third farmer's market in a, in a year or throw any more food away that we aren't able to market. So that's all about being uh lean,
0: yeah. On the topic of, of labor and mentioning how the team that's <clears throat> They're not there the whole time, but they're getting older and their kids and grandkids are in school because this is a huge issue in all of agriculture is just having enough help. And then as the average age of the farmer is 60 plus, uh, less and less people are wanting to get into agriculture as the generations go on and technology advances. How are you guys going about that in terms of trying to... As they're getting older and help mitigate the potential of not having enough help and then as you're continuing to work and then potentially not having enough help i'm just curious how you all are planning to to tackle that
1: yeah so it's a it's a lot to do with uh like yeah gr- growing the quantity that respects that type of uh or what am i trying to say like like we don't want to grow 15 acres of onions and find out we don't have that type of help. So we're kind of always adjusting our scale based on the labor pool available and who wants to do it and who would sign up for it. And like, don't get me wrong. They enjoy doing it. It's just like, um, how much can you really put them through and what's the cost benefit if they're working slower or there's too many acres and it's a weedy, especially weedy year. Um, those are, those are little parameters. And so as far as like forecasting, like, we taught, my dad and I talk a lot about like, Oh, what if like so-and-so leaves or it gets too expensive. Like then all of a sudden it's like, my dad and I are going to move hand lines. We're just going to go to the center, turn the pivot on. We're not going to farm the corners. Uh, we're probably going to put things into grass, put it through an animal, figure out how to market more beef instead of, you know, hoeing onions in July. And so it's like, We're always anticipating some, you know, not like an apocalyptic future, but just like, what if it was just him and I taking care of 700 acres, like that would be really profound. And I know that we would find help. There's help and resilience in a community like this, but uh, it is something that we plan for and think about. And my father uses the the H2A program, which uh, allows you to like get migrant workers from Mexico legally. And, uh, you know, you have to give them like a living wage and and accommodations to live. And so we have that relationship with, um, with two workers and they're from, and I've gone down to visit them in Mexico in the state of Michoacan, because, um, one of their community members is someone who has, who got like the, uh, like the Bill Clinton asylum, got their green card. I don't know. That was like a big, I didn't really realize, but that's when it happened kind of late nineties that everybody it was here, kind of got a green card. And so uh, Rogelio Gomez is his name and he goes back and forth every year with his green card. And we were able to meet community members of his that were able to sign up through the H2 program. And so like, that's a huge part of making like half of my father's farm run is like those three guys. And so like Rogelio's getting up there in age. He like just wants to run the garden. He doesn't want to move lines. He doesn't want to be responsible for the 240 acres that he has been in the past and that's kind of where the other two guys are like taking the labor um and demands of that the rest of that property away from Aurelio. and so we kind of have a little succession that we're working there we're wondering if they've got the green thumb that that he's got to to grow the ve- the vegetable garden that we're famous for but uh yeah so it's always a conversation and you know like there's always you know, woofers or like, I, I have people that live here with me and um, they're fascinated with food and agriculture and the lifestyle. And so I'm always think like, I, I keep running into housing. Housing's the biggest thing. It's like, we also are experiencing a huge boom in Southern Idaho. So like little, you know, what I would describe little shitty homes in Glens Ferry used to be like $20,000. And uh, now they want like 160 and you could have bought a whole block of homes for 200,000 you know, five years ago, like we could have bought a city neighborhood. And now it's like, you know, you can't do that. So it's like, you know, do we need tiny homes? Do we need yurts? Do we need to build, you know, earthen domes? You know, it's like, there's going to have to be this, like if we're going to bring people back to the land and make this farm function without being like super technocratic about it and just like grow one crop at mass, which is like probably what they're asking for. Um, like we're going to have to find really creative ways of getting of housing people. Cause I think, I think mean? people want to work. I think people want to work. People want to be on the land. Like it might not be the same version of work, like where it's just like been day in and day out, sun up to sundown. Like i not, i understand that not being what everybody wants, but we all want to pick apples when the apples are ripe. And that's, there's just, it's, and that's when you do it. And that's when you work hard at doing that. And so um, figuring out a way to make that, accommodation possible is, is kind of where my head at, is at constantly.
0: I wholeheartedly agree with that. Cause I, I did wolfing. That's whenever I first switched into agriculture. That's, uh, what I was doing. And I was fortunate enough to the farm I was on. They had, try to think off the top of my head, the farm, the ranch hand had his own, just like small built cabin that the, the owner made the owner built their own house for him, his family his father-in-law had built another cottage and then there's another two other cottages essentially there. So there was a lot of housing. Mm -hmm. And I remember hearing, I've talked to locals whenever I was there, there's a few folks that did wolfing as well. They had some terrible experiences, but it was also on the topic of housing. And so I could totally see how disastrous that that would be if I did not have the the living situation that I had, because it made it a uh, a hell of a lot more manageable for mm-hmm, sure. Mm-hmm. If I did not have something like that, that I probably would have left. To be honest, yeah, totally. So transitioning a little bit, going back to whenever you were talking about selling to, you were selling to Amy's Kitchen and the others that you listed. When trying to do that outreach and starting those conversations, yeah, I'm just curious to hear about that process because I'm assuming that it's kind of a long process before you're able to even have a contract and, and start working together. So yeah, how, how does that work?
1: Yeah, well, it's, you know, they're all kind of, you're always kind of riding on the previous year's relationship. And unfortunately with Amy's, like they they, they came up with some standards that like we could not meet. Uh, most bean growers in Southern Idaho couldn't meet those standards. And so we, we had to move on from that relationship, but because we've sold overage, it, overage I mean like stuff that we grew beyond the contract because we've sold that overage to other processors like that's like a little foot in like hey do you want me to grow you a couple loads of beans because i sold you that extra load last year and so i think that you know especially in the organic world it's so small like you know you f- you find the direct i mean obviously they're gonna put it in cans you're not finding the direct customer but like you're finding those relationships with the processors like um quickly you know, two phone calls, maybe put on hold for a little bit and you're right to the guy who signs a check, sends money and, you know, anticipates volume and production. And so mm-hmm. it's, it's an easy, like shoe in, you know, Find And like, I'm always like down to, you know, like I, I'll, anytime I'm in Costco or like in another part of the country, like I like to go and like, look at what thing like what things have beans in them. So like, there'll be like an organic frozen burrito at Costco. And it's like some food company in New Jersey or, uh, Orvi- or uh, Irvine, California that I've never heard of. And it's like, those are people worth calling. They might be buying beans from other middlemen or have their own contracts, mm-hmm. but it's like always really important to like when you're selling a commodity to find out, you know, who's, who has stepped up to the plate and decided to recently use organic beans in one of their products. And so that's a little bit of what, of what we do as well. And yeah, just, it's like i said it's such a small community um they know my father's capable of growing them and uh if they come to a you know if you come to an agreeable price they typically will want to continue to do business with you and you know that's a lot Mm -hmm. different for bigger commodities like i'm thinking about wheat like conventional wheats like i mean i'm sure there's only a few purchasers because of how conglomerated uh big food is but uh classic conventional farmer that's growing wheat somewhere here is like going to do business with the mill. And then the mill is going to do business with the processor. So they're, they're one more removed from the relationship. And so that's, that's a difficult position to be in because now the mill is interested in its own margins and they becomes, you know, that's what they scrutinize your, you know, what, how clean your wheat is or whether it has weevils uh, or whether there's like rye or vetch or peas mixed in on accident. And so, you become now, now you're at the scrutiny of another guy who's not as far up the chain, uh, but he's going to make his money. He's going to get his cut. Like that's the only way the mill can exist. And so um, we do business with mills, but as like a contract, like as a, as a contracted, like you would contract your plumbing, like, Hey, store and clean these beans for me. These other guys, I've been talking to them. They're going to come pick them up when they're ready. And so Mm -hmm. that's our relationship with mills. But your relationship might be in some instances that you just sell the mill. The mill tells you what their, the price of wheat is right now. And, oh, we don't like that. Take five cents off. We don't like that. Take another cent off. All of a sudden, you know, you've been really taken advantage of. And so that's not like, like I'm saying, we're, we, we have a relationship and an existence that's not uh, necessarily the norm for everyone. But the organic community is really small and it's easy to foster those relationships.
0: That's cool. Is that? Do you have the experience working with grocery stores as well? Because on the topic I've taken advantage of, I've just heard so many horror stories, especially with Whole Foods, to where they have agreed upon uh, just giving them their produce or meat, for example. And then Whole Foods will just have these crazy asks, asking for more volume, or they just change their mind. And then the farmers is just shit out of luck. They can't do anything about that. So I'm just curious if you've worked with grocery stores and if you've had any similar experiences similar to that.
1: Yeah, I work with grocery stores mostly on a on a as is basis um, with availability and freshness. And like the Whole Foods thing, um, they started the Boise Whole Foods, and like my father was like instantly propelled propelled to their poster child of local because and that this is this is pre pre Amazon merger. So maybe kind of definitely, definitely a, a way different culture because I've been around Whole Foods in the meat world recently as well. And, you know, they featured all his product, put his name on it. It's local. It's 60 miles away. This is our guy. You know, come do tastings, blah, blah, blah. And then it slowly turns into like, they had, they, I mean, you know, our understanding is we'll just stick to potatoes and onions. Like our understanding is they probably have obligations to other growers. And so like we were, when I got back to the farm, we would sell the whole foods. It was all sticky because, you know, it's like a bunch of different software that nobody wanted to use. And, uh, and we had more potatoes, like, I don't know, just after Christmas, we have more potatoes and onions. And they're just like, they just stop ordering. And it's like, what's going on? You know, we finally, and it's, that's a huge phone tag. Talk about, I know I just got done saying, like, organics is small and you go direct to the guy. Whole Foods is a beast. Regional offices, you know, uh, that are hard to, to navigate through just on a phone and, uh, or email. And then you find out that they're just not buying from you because, like, they probably bought a bunch earlier that year and put them in storage in Colorado. And now they need to sell those. You know, they need to move through that product. So you're just cast away. And I've heard of so many people just get cast away when it's like, no, we've got what you want. We got what you want closer than you could imagine, fresher, tastier, probably more nutritious. And they're like, they've got some grander scheme going on with their warehousing where it's like, no, we need to move through this now. We don't care about you small guys. And so it's like, definitely, I mean, they're just like the masters of hypocrisy. And then you have the Amazon merger. Um, We stopped doing business with them entirely. And uh, we were part of a grass-fed beef cooperative, but still does business with them today. But it's this this, like giant uh, revolving negotiation of of, like price, what stores we're allowed into, why we're allowed into those, why or why not we're allowed into any particular, I keep saying we, not a part of them any longer, but why or why not they're they're allowed in a store. And then like circling back and like having to re-educate them on like, this is why you buy grass-fed beef. This is why you buy regeneratively raised beef. This is why our beef is halfway goo. You know, this is why you're buying the whole carcass. You're not buying packaged steaks from us because you're going to find more value if you have a meat cutter. But now they're getting away from just having a meat cutter at the counter and they're just having like all pre-packed frozen meat available. And it's like, you know, they're, they're on a slippery slope. It's really uh, shit. Maybe then we won't even offer meat. I don't know, but it's uh it's really silly considering like all the great things they've done, for alternative growing practices from their inception till now, and really incredible about the amount of people they've left in the dust in in the wake of that. And so it's like Whole Foods is such a fascinating one. You know, I like to go in there just to check out what's going on. And you know, they don't do any uh, they don't do any recognition anymore. Like if you go in, it just says like onions. That's it. And and they used to like if they knew they would tell you and they do the same thing behind the beef counter now too it's just grass fed steak they don't like give the ranch or the, like in our case we were part of a co-op they don't give you that they don't give you that free branding like it's it's branding nonetheless that that that's, doesn't really cost them much they were already going to put a sticker out there with the price you could just as easily put the logo next to it and the meat guy be able to tell you but it's like they they want that like i don't know what what you would call that that just insulated, uh, one stop, no frills shopping experience where it's like, just take our word for it. They're organic onions, but you could be in onion country and they could be from the other side of the country. And I don't know. I don't know what they're doing in there. The grocery stores that I deal with now are, are really good. And it's a constant relationship that we're, we're
0: working on. I mean, it's so interesting with Whole Foods because that's one simple change that can have such a massive impact, not just on the producers, but the consumers, because seeing the onions from a certain farm, that just adds a name to the face, essentially. And it might, I don't know, I feel to me that there's just, that adds a small little piece of just connection to your food rather than you go to the grocery store and you just pick up an onion not a clue in the world where it's coming from. And that just adds more to the disconnect of an already disconnected community to the food because we I say this time and time again, we're the most disconnected we've ever been from our food, which mm-hmm. is wild considering. That's how we were able to advance a society. That's how we're able to exist as a society is food. Totally. Uh, so, yeah. So to can you continue on? So you you started when you came back to your farm with your father, um, how did you transition a little bit to where you're at now with Wild Spaces? Because I know we were talking about on the phone yesterday how there's three different plots of land and you had 15 acres. It's 15 acres or was it 25?
1: Yeah, it's it's speak? like 15 grazing, but I use the hay off another 10, so you could like my total footprint's probably 25
0: yeah so how did you get to that then as you were doing the marketing everything with your father uh yeah as that was progressing on
1: yeah so i started wild spaces farm last year in 2022 and it was um uh i know i know why i got why i got dairy curious but or when but uh i really started to hammer out the details in um january february of 21 and so i kind of had a whole year before i like put the actual physical work in uh, of creating my dairy by uh by just having lots of conversations about dairy and that was because i was finishing up my final semester at school university of montana and like you take me away from here and all i can think about is here and you know sometimes on the hardest day i might be thinking about you know mexico surfing being somewhere else doing something else. But, uh, like my heart is here and my creativity is in land management. And so I just like, was just brewing, just fermenting so much information about like, what it would be like to run a micro dairy. What would it be like to, to produce my own milk? And, uh, that really started for me because I was not here. I wasn't home. And when I would go to school, I take, tons of onions, potatoes and winter squash and, uh, frozen beef and elk or deer that I had hunted. And I take all that with me for school and be eating through that, going to farmer's markets. And I'm just thinking about like, gosh, dang it. Like I gotta go to Albertsons. I gotta get cream, butter, cheese, ice cream. Over and over and over again, my cart would just have like all dairy in it. And I just know, I know what dairying is and dairying is like I think it's just the most fascinating disconnection that we could possibly have with everything that's, you know, sacred, nutritious, beautiful. Um, and in Idaho, we're the number three dairy state, I think both behind Pennsylvania and California, or maybe it's Wisconsin, not Pennsylvania. Regardless, we had, we like are pushing the envelope of what big dairy is. And there is like all these towns east of me and they stink like shit. And there's all these cafo's, and like the hay world and the corn world of Southern Idaho revolves around these large dairies. And you have cheese factories and my friends have worked there and like, you know, them and their coworkers are on drugs and they're all just like running forklifts for this machine, this like, massive dairy industry is just like ruining cows, ruining aquifers, um and ruining the people that run it. Because it's such like a just always has to be going on. You know, they milk three times a day now. There's dairies here in Idaho that are ten thousand cows plus. I mean it's just like it's like whoa, you know? And like the organic thing, unfortunately, and I, I can I love organic it's been a huge part of my life. I can poke holes in it all day and and what's wrong with it. And one of them, one of the things is allowing confinement animal feeding operations for your dairies, um, to exist. And so that has, uh, always weighed heavy on me and, and, and to especially witness the conventional side where it's even bigger and grosser and, you know, they're just making powdered milk to like send to China for them to turn it into something. Like, it's just like, this is the like epitome of evil. I think, I think it's evil that we would treat cows this way, treat our land resources this way, treat the people that run them this way. And then just like take what was a sacred, potent, powerful medicine. That's what I always say. Potent, powerful, perishable medicine and turn it into Velveeta cheese slices and turn it into Kraft Swiss and to turn it into all of this like garbage that's actually bad for you. You know, like people that say dairy is bad, like they're not wrong, you know? And, and it's because we've just adulterated it beyond belief. And so that was really trickling in all the time on me. Like I knew too much <laughs> and then I'm not acting on it enough. I needed that congruency. Like I couldn't just be whole foods about this. I needed to, I needed to, to follow up. And so I was just going to get a cow. I was just like, I, I can milk a cow. And, um, then I start thinking about like, well, maybe I should crack the numbers. Like I go to farmer's markets. I have these relationships already with the grocery stores. Like people know me they know my father, they know what we're doing. Like, so I start to speak with this guy, uh, his name is Peter Dill, St. John's organic in Emmett. And he's the only guy scale and style wise that I could talk to in my area. And he knows my father and he's been up and down and has been a huge part of making raw milk legal in Idaho. And so um, I started having conversations with him just about what it would be like to run a small dairy, like nutrient waste management, milk machines, stanchions, calf sharing, not calf sharing, being on grass, not feeding grain, uh, being seasonal, not milking year round, having a small herd, what genetics. And It's, you know, just like, this is just buzzing all the time. It's like all I could think about. I'm like trying to write papers to finish and graduate. And I'm just thinking that I'm like scheming this, this little creamery I'm going to start. And then I start having conversations with a friend of mine who was, is now the CEO, but at the time was running the, it's known as the Impact Idaho Fund. And it's through the Sun Valley Institute for Resilience, a nonprofit that is leveraging Uh, Donor and investor money for entrepreneurial regenerative ag or local food um, systems. And so I'm talking to her and she's like, and I'm thinking like, I'm going to get a bucket and then I'm going to get a cow and then I'm going to probably not like it, but I'm going to try it. And then she's kind of like, well, like if you had the money, would you do it? Like, would you do it in any different fashion? I was like, oh yeah, I would totally do it. And so we did all our due diligence together, her and two other people on our team. And we, you know, projected and schemed and prophesized <laughs> what it would be like. And I was able to secure funding December of 21 from that nonprofit to get the necessary infrastructure and equipment and cattle to start my micro dairy. And I convinced two of my friends uh, that are seasonal workers to come and help me You know, remodel some buildings, build one, redo fences, create infrastructure, branding, uh, you know, all the back end stuff about running a business. And that was really important to me, not just to get this uh, this precious food item um, straight from the source, but also that I take on risk. Like my father's a great dude, super contrarian, like going to farm to his last moment, not, there's no retirement. He is in retirement. It's just more farming. And I think for him and I, I needed to have done something. And like, I didn't want to go away from the farm or get a job like, you know, for the BLM or some other food company. Like I wanted to be here, but I needed to do more than just like be a hand, you know, cause I was just comfortable being a hand, but I needed risk and I wanted it wanted the challenge. And I'm fascinated by the challenge of like trying to run a dairy and a business and work for him. You know, it's like, it seems like a lot, but it's, it's part of that necessary grind, you know, like it, it would be not the same if I didn't leverage my youthful energy to do something bigger than me now so that I can get to a time in my life when I can step back. I can, you know, maybe pull some strings and younger people will be farming the land and and I can just, you know, think it was a good idea, hopefully. So, I got the capital and I started uh, I started my raw milk dairy last spring. Sold my first uh, half gallon of milk in April of 2022. And so I operate a grass-fed, pasture-based raw milk seasonal dairy that shares or you know, shares with the calves seasonal dairy. It sells mostly direct to consumer. And that mentor, what I meant to say is he was the one who really pushed me into raw. He was like, This is cool and all what you're gonna do with your dairy, but you really need to start thinking about like about raw. You need to do your own research, you need to find out what that is. And that just like blew the door open. It was like, oh my god, another lie, you know, because I didn't even really know about raw milk. One time my friend mentioned that he was gonna get raw milk for his kid, and I'm just like, I don't even know what you're talking about. So I just won't even ask. And, and now I know what he was getting at and I'm glad that he did. And, um, yeah, I'd never really been introduced to it. And yeah, we just grew up drinking the, drinking the garbage from the store. And then eventually we started getting organic Valley, which is a little better, but still pasteurized, not that, not, not that much better considering their practices. And, um, yeah, starting a dairy was, uh, changed my life.
0: That's awesome. And I agree with the Organic Valley. I remember hearing first about their practices. It's pretty horrid. So you mentioned that dairy is this powerful, potent medicine. And from doing your research and going down that rabbit hole, what makes you say that about raw dairy? Um,
1: Raw dairy is, well dairy, dairy, so milk and this is is an interesting one to wrap your head around, but milk and honey are the only food items in the world. They're the only things that were created to be food. You know, seeds didn't want to be eaten fruit. There's a little bit of an exception with fruit because fruit's kind of like a over-exaggerated sex organ or placenta so that the seeds could get dispersed. But nonetheless, like plants didn't want to get eaten. Animals sure as hell didn't intend to be eaten. You know, that, that's muscle. That's just their muscle. That's not for you. We certainly eat those things, but like milk's only function is to feed and same with honey. And it's like, that's a pretty, I think that's really profound and really like can always center us on like what is milk and what is dairy. And so raw dairy being a powerful potent medicine is that it's in its intact form with the proteins and fats not harmed, unhampered with, and they're uh, more bioavailable. There's enzymes that are in place that allow you to digest raw milk, uh, or yeah, that allow you to digest lactose. And there's a naturally occurring community of bacteria that is an inoculation, you know, like the probiotic industry is like a billion strong now. Just those like weird bottles that nobody buys. I guess i don't buy them but other people do and uh and and they should you know if you're if you're not in the right place you need to get in the right place with your gut health but um krauts ferments raw milk yogurt like ke- kefir these things uh are the original inoculation because our you know we're struggling right now especially in this post-pandemic world where we have like germ theory and we have immune system theory or terrain theory and so we have to like decide you know like what are we what do we believe and um, i really believe that we're out here existing as individuals with an immune system that um, reacts to stimuli and so that naturally occurring bacteria turns over your own bacteria but also offers a slight immune response so that your body has something to do you know have you, you heard of the hygiene hypothesis
0: yeah but if you can just yeah talk just about that more
1: just i think it's some like uh anthropologists actually stumbled. man yeah, they're probably medical people but it's like the Western developed countries deal with all these crazy diseases that the rest of the world doesn't like your autoimmune diseases, like asthma and uh hyper to toxins, food and the environment. And then like you go to a less developed world or country and they don't have those health problems. And the theory is, it's is just theory is that they're uh, interacting with more um typically parasites is what they found but like bacteria parasites and pathogens in their environment and bolstering immune response and so their body actually has something to do and so they're not actually dealing with um nothing and so the thought is that like our bodies here in the united states don't have anything to fight with we clean everything we sanitize everything we bleach everything um, it comes in a wrapper, you know, you don't go outside, Oh, you're dirty, get clean. You know, we don't like allow for any of that funk into our life. And so then our bodies are bored and they have to have, come up with something. And so then you're just like shellfish and you develop a food allergy to shellfish because it's like, doesn't come in very often. And maybe you got a leaky gut because of all the glyphosate that you've been eating and that enters your bloodstream and you have an immune response. That's like, we don't deal with shellfish anymore. <laughs> and like, that's so crazy because it, it's a, it's a great, uh, great product to consume and good for you. And so that kind of, that hygiene hypothesis is that there's not, uh, anything for us to deal with. And so milk, raw milk, like, it should not have like heinous, you know, bacterial counts, but it is, it does have bacteria and it is offering, like I said, a turnover and inoculation, but also a subtle immune response. So you're, you're actually dealing with something.
0: Hmm. That's super interesting. That makes a lot of sense. Also, I just the taste of raw dairy and, and raw ice cream. Oh it's yeah, just so, so delicious. Yeah, it's, it's paramount.
1: I mean, it's like unprecedented, and like there's so uh, so much to be said about like thick whole milk. I mean, I had someone the other day tell me they'd never had raw milk and they didn't know if they'd like it because it's thick. And I'm just thinking like you don't like a milkshake, you know, like, I mean, it's not that big, but yeah. it's like, it's not water, you know? And that's like, what's really unfortunate. Yeah. That's why I remind people that it's a perishable medicine too. It's like, we've been really tricked with pasteurization, homogenization. And these food companies are doing some tricky stuff when it comes to like cutting milk and adding preservatives and added it's And so we uh, need to consume dairy quickly. You know, that's something that I try to express to my my like customers, like we've been lied to, to find milk for a dollar at the gas station. That's a weird place to find milk. And that's a, not a good price. And it tastes like water because it is. And so like, don't treat dairy this way. You know, if you've got some of my milk, keep it cold, keep the lid on it, consume it by the next time you see me next week, you know, and like, that's not like a marketing ploy. That's just like safety. That's risk management.
0: Yeah curious what type of conversations you've been having then with locals in terms of raw dairy. Cause uh, are there majority of the folks did they already consume raw dairy or they just saw what you're doing and that kind of piqued their interest?
1: Yeah. It's so cool. I get people from all like this whole like spectrum of where they decide to get in. And some people like I have a a lot of older people. It's like nostalgia. Like they don't even know why it's good or bad. Um, like that you or I might know because of nutritional science has become uh, exposed, but that like they just remember going down the road to the local dairy and coming right out of the bulk tank into a a jar and taking it home. And so I have that, which is really adorable. And then I've got like people that are way more fit than me that are just like, this is what we drink, you know, and it's like this, it's the protein. It's the unadulterated nature of it and it's all bioavailable. And they've done their research, they've come to those conclusions and maybe they were already consuming it. Then I have people that I've like, I have a couple people that are like ex-vegans and they're like, they know they need animal nutrition. They're maybe not going to eat a steak. Uh, and then they like, they hear about my dairy where it's like, we're seasonal and we share with the calf. And so we're not participating in that kind of industrial practice of taking the calves away at birth And so like, mm, they're having it. They have a. They have morality. They have some ethics about what they do or do not eat. Now they're being confronted with like this nutritional side where they realize they need that type of nutrition in their life, and they're like, I think I like what you're doing. Like those people, that really warms my heart because that's like I knew I was doing. I knew that I decided to confine my, <laughs> my restrain my practices, uh, for a reason. And I have other people that are just. It's just purely calf sharing. They just love that I share with the calves, So they want to be there other people. It's like, it's cause it's grass. It's like, it's grass fed. And then when it comes to like people that already drink raw milk, but now you're looking at me versus everyone else around me. Uh, there, there's a lot of people that, that love that I sell in class. And that's a huge part to me too. And so I think I'm getting like nostalgia, bioavailability, people that need know they need animal nutrition, And want to do it, like, want to feel good about it in their hearts. And then, and there's that there's some people that arrive at it for a sustainability thing when it comes to like it's local, it's quick, and it's in glass.
0: I love the glass because I just seeing, I mean, Twitter, I don't know if you use Twitter at all, but Twitter, especially on, I guess, the side of Twitter I'm on, will always share kind of old school pictures. And I always love seeing the ones of the, the milk delivery with just Mm -hmm. the the six glass bottles totally and it's awesome my last question i have would just be on the topic you're mentioning how uh just the ethics from the ex-vegans and um separation of of the caffeine just the separation and how you don't do that can you just explain uh that whole process and why you chose to do what you're doing with that
1: yeah, I'll do the why, and then I'll do the how because the how is like constantly being refined. Um, but the why, the why is like to to boot to go with the ten thousand cow dairies and the you know crackheads at the cheese plant and the like just pulling all of this biomass off the land that I live on, the land that I live around, just to feed cows over there and then pollute that aquifer like with all that, and then the cows only live to be like three years old now because they're just disease and they run through them so quick and like they're taking those calves away at birth they put them in little hutches and you know they didn't get to grow up with their mom like even in the slightest and uh that like like that i'm just not i'm not i'm not okay with that like i and and when you see it when you like it's one thing like you could probably get down with it at like my scale like, if you saw, like, oh, I take the calves away and they're, like, right over here and we take care of them and, like, we would all, like, go and love them. Uh, but, like, if you saw it at scale, if you saw the, like, rows and rows of hutches and the little dairy calves in them, like, I mean, it's a heartbreaker. It's a real heartbreaker. And, and, and so I think, like, part of it is the scale thing. Like, I can't possibly imagine why, you know, and, like, and then to get them in, on and off the trucks, you know, they're just, these dairy calves don't know anything um and you know like the guys are just like throwing them on the trailer and throwing them out of the trailer and it's just like oh man this is so brutal um ultimately for something that you just bastardize anyways and turn into Velveeta (laughs) and so like that really like was something where I'm like man if this is avoidable at all I don't like I'm gonna avoid it and so It's not novel and it's definitely probably used to be the norm, but you can, because we've selected animal, you know, these dairy animals to produce more milk, like they can have enough for the animal, the baby and share some, you know, like not like if we go get an Angus one, you might get kicked and two, it's probably not enough milk for the calf and others. And so, um, that's known as calf sharing or calf at foot. And there's a lot of different versions and I'm not saying what I do is right, but I'm trying to fill, I'm trying to fill a market void because there's high demand for raw milk and I'm trying to do it to the best of my ability with the best of my energy because I'm not, I don't have employees yet. I have one guy that helps me, he's great help, he's incredible. Um, And I'm not ready to like let the dairy like go out of my hands because I'm still figuring out so much. And so there's a lot of different tweaks that I think about all the time. And I'm not trying to get in a position where I need more milk financially. Um, even though that like I could never have enough, um, considering how wild people are for it right now. And so I'm always constantly checking the profitability of my business or keeping it in check in order to maintain those ethics. And so it's calf at foot or calf sharing, and there's a lot of different versions and I can go over like a couple and then like what I've experimented with. And so um, when I have a calf born, they have 24 hour access to their mom. They're always with mom for two to three weeks. And then on the three week mark, and I'll milk the mom too. And like they're just in like peak lactation because they just birthed and like, there's like health reasons that you need to milk them so that they don't like develop any disease. And there's extra inflammation cause they just had birth and there's all this hormone regulation and uh, balancing out that's going on. And so you just wanna make sure that like the milk's flowing and you're not getting any like mastitis issues or milk fever. And so they have 24 hour access, three weeks and then I start to take the calf and put it in a pen at night and they can still rub noses and talk and kiss and stuff, but they, uh, well, they're not supposed to nurse. I've seen some pretty creative neck stretching though, but, uh, the calves are in a pen overnight, the kindergarten, so to speak. And, uh, once I have enough calves, it's like kind of crazy, like the calf culture. Cause then all the calves, like I go to get them out of the pasture and we just like take off and. Sometimes it's, don't get me wrong, there's some shit shows, but sometimes it's like incredibly smooth how it's like, they all want to like, hang out, not with them. And the moms are like, see in the morning anyways, you know, and didn't really care. You know, it's like really funny how concerned a mom will be up to like three weeks. And then they're just kind of like, I got a kid around here somewhere, you know? And, uh, <laughs> and so then like, And that's what I, so that's currently like my models. I keep the calf in at night, milk the mom. And then when I'm done milking the moms, I'll let the calves out. They can drink all day. And then I put the calves back in. And that works well to a point. And this is something where I'm like struggling. uh, My business struggles from it. And then uh, ideologically I'm hampered. And then I am looking for alternatives. But um, when they hit that, there's like kind of this exponential growth thing where they hit that like two, three months and they're starting to get that 250 300 pound weight to them. They drink a lot, a lot, a lot. And the moms are also on a, you know, their lactation curve is like hot. It starts high and it goes like this over nine months. And so like when you're coming out of like at its highest and now you're here, but the calf's consumptions crossing it right there, it's not a, easy to be in there like, Hey, I'm going to a farmer's market on Saturday. You guys want to give me any milk, you know? And so they know that they're going to get their calf in like 40 minutes if they wait. And so I have a lot of hold up and they don't let down. And I, I do know that to be, or I've been told that it's genetic and you can select for it. And there's some cows that do it better on an individual basis, and maybe even on a breed by breed basis. And so those are all things that I'm working to uncover for myself. And then I have, like, a threshold of age and weight where I'm like, that cows, that calf's old enough to make it on its own. And so I'm started to rethink, you know, year two in my business, seasonal. I'm about to take my break here uh, for Christmas. That's my present to myself. Um, and that, like, I think that if I could get in, if I always had cows, they were in late lactation, like three or four or five months left in their lactation, but they've grown you know, five to, you know, 450 to 500 pound calf. And I can do a full wean on that calf, um, which isn't really any different than most of the meat industry and the the ranching world and take that four or 500 pound calf away and then have four months of unrestricted milking. And like, that's really important because, but it's like, I always need the calf in the beginning because I only want to milk once a day. And that's a big thing for me. Like I only do it in the morning. I don't do, I don't milk twice a day. And so I need the calf around because the calf is doing me the work that I would otherwise have to do. So like, if I start taking calves away, I'm milking twice a day. So I don't want to take calves away until we're later into their lactation and they're just on grass. So it's like I'm doing myself favors by not doing a high energy ration, like silage, corn, soy, um, oats and stuff. So like they're not producing extra milk, pushing on that. And, um, when I do take the calf away later in lactation, like, and we're just on grass, it's gonna be just like a nice gradual decline until I dry them off. And so I've started to stop thinking about like, when are these cows gonna calf? When are these cows gonna calf? And thinking more like, oh, I wouldn't mind to have some late calvers. And then when I come out of my dry spell or my, my dry spell where I'm not working and milking and it's market season in April next spring, I could take these big calves away and milk those moms for three or four more months. And some other cows will have calves mm-hmm. by then and they'll be peak lactation and um, just kind of have that variety of stages of lactation. And so that's what I'm working on tweaking. I've also thought of like uh, when those calves hit that three, 400 pound weight, that I uh, only let them have their moms once a day. If it's extra management. I kind of need some more pens or like pat, like more division. I don't know, you, pretty hard to divide a mom from a calf with any hot wire or even barbed wire. And so like, um, I'm kind of restricted by that. I've, I've of people that like do halters and ropes and you just go and you tie them to a fence somewhere and they can graze your, the shoulder of your farm. And then like you go and take them to their mom in the afternoon, they drink, you know, for 15 minutes and then mom goes without. So then it's just like a classically two times a day. Whereas like, you know, they might drink from mom four or five times today um, after, after I'm done with her. And so that's a tweak that I've been considering. Uh, my mentor does a, like just has cows that are only going to raise multiple calves and then cows that are just going to milk. And, you know, so, so he, he's using a nurse cow, grafting them off a lot. You know, other, other producers do that. Some people are just solid nine months straight built into their economic model of their farm. That cow's always raising that calf and they're always sharing. Um, and so I, I don't know, I'm, I'm working on it. It's a tough one, it, but it's like, I'm not in, like, if I had to compromise on it, I just wouldn't do it. You know, like it's, and I think that, and maybe like, maybe it's too much virtue for capitalism, but I think that like, we can allow crony capitalism to, to take place, or we can instill virtue and integrity into our businesses and just, accept that like it might you might not make your millions and trust me this is not my million dollar idea but uh it's like i think it's worth it for me to find out if we can do this correctly because of all the things i know that are wrong with it and like i already know that like if my whole town if every individual in this 1200 person town decided to drink raw milk i cannot fill that void and so there's some really trippy statistics where it's like i think it's like uh I don't know. How, how does it go? It's like, it's like there's 350,000 dairy cows and there always has been like since 1910. Wow. But it's the amount of farmers now has gone from like a hundred thousand to like 17,000 or something like that. Dairy, dairy farmers yeah. in the country. It's like, a, it's a really bizarre because it's like the amount of lactating dairy animals is still the same, but it's the, the coalesce has been really real, you know, where it's like, it's not the same for farmland because we've built all over a bunch of farmland. But, um, and those statistics are just as disp- depressing because there's less acreage, less farmers and somehow more food. Um, but yeah, that that calf sharing component is is important to me and, and one that I really wanna sleuth out, you know, one that I, another like, I don't know if we if you want to keep going but the other thing that i the other thing that i do that i i might have pigeonholed myself a little bit um is like uh i know how important it is that animals live a live and eat in a lifestyle that's congruent with them you know ancestrally and
0: Mm -hmm.
1: like so grass-fed beef grass-fed lamb grass-fed goat um like that's really important that those ruminants are only eating grass and i've seen the product of like you know we've raised plenty of grass finished beef fed and finished um bovine but what we've done genetically to dairy cows has been in the wake or like within the confinement of confinement and so we've pushed on selection for milk production with silage available with corn available, with soy available. So like our genetics match this feeding industry and to take one out of it and put it onto grass, like you can compromise the health of an animal really quickly because they don't have the intuit, uh, the like instinctual selecting for, you know, their medicine and their nutrition. And like, oh, we need to browse this tree right now, this time of year for these minerals. And we need to now switch from mostly clover onto this grass. and. Back to this plantain and to this chicory, and so there's like all of this stuff that all of these beef cows, especially out on rangeland, like they're so incredibly well adapted and smart because these ranchers have been here for generations and they've kept you know their uh, their dams, their their mo- their mother cows, and they've learned all of this incredible selection for their diet. And now we've got these like factory raised animals who have like for generations genetically been exposed to um uh type of diet and framework and so to bring them out of that and then put them onto grass is like it's pretty dangerous and i and i talked to some producers and it's like yeah we're like grass fed like all the way but then to realize like we're dealing with animals that don't know what they're doing or the genetics have been pushed too far for grass to support that and so you know sometimes i wish i would have always just said i'm pasture-based and Never said I'm grass fed because I've seen the condition of my animals suffer at times where I wish I could just like, just a coffee can's worth of oats. But of course, it'd be organic oats that my father and I grew, uh, but I just know that like a little extra energy for the type of energy they're putting out for me and the calf, like could really sustain their condition over time. And so, um, it needs to be selected for. And like if anybody's listening to this, deciding to start a raw milk dairy, like. Yeah, just go and find the people that have the grass-based dairy already. It's expensive. It's more expensive if you look for A2 and a particular breed. Like, hopefully, you're on the other side of the Mississippi. It's a little, it's a little hard out here in the West looking for cool dairy breeds that are on grass. But I think it's really worth the time to go find animals that are adapted to grass. And that's not something I just came up with. I hear, it, I hear it from producers like me all the time, and, and I see it now out there where I like, I took the hard stance of being grass fed. And then now I'm just like, man, I wish that I didn't do that so that I could just kind of sleep easy at night knowing I didn't lie to anyone and just give them some oats, you know, because dang, they need it, you know? And so, and so then I have to modify And I get more hay in front of them or I stop milking them and they're only raising their calf. You know, Like I have to make my management decisions around that as well. But I realized that it's like, you know, we raised them in an industrial setting. They're used to an industrial setting, and now we're asking them not to be in an industrial setting, and it's going to hurt uh, until we have that, uh, those genetics long standing. And so I have some grass animals. I have one animal that's from a CAFO, or I assume she got cold out of one, and she's a great cow. She actually just had twins, so I don't even milk her because she's got double duty.
0: That's really interesting. That makes a lot of sense. I didn't even really think about it. Uh, I mean, it's not the exact same, but it just kind of reminds me. I just talked to somebody who served in the military and um, just trying to assimilate to back into the civilian world. That's a huge change. So I can only imagine after genetically modifying that through CAFOs over centuries, how that could be such a challenge.
1: Yeah, totally. Yeah, like it's like for dairy farmers, it's maybe three generations. But for dairy cows, especially when we started burning through them even quicker, you know, you're turning over generations of cows way faster than humans. And uh, yeah, it's tough. It's tough to to integrate back.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining. I know there's so much more we could have talked about. So I'm definitely going to have to have a, a part two to this. Heck yeah. Where could the listeners find you?
1: Yeah, so you can follow me on Instagram, Wild Spaces Farm. And also, my father's farm, King's Crown Organics. And uh, we're not, we have no relation to nobility. It's a geological landmark in the area called King's Crown. And so, uh, yeah, King's Crown Organics on Instagram, King's Crown Organics.com, Wild Spaces com, And our, my milk is only available in Idaho due to the laws. And uh, that's available at the Boise Farmers Market. And, uh, six creeks mercantile here in glens ferry nourish me and uh cafe della in the wood river valley and yeah my father's produce is available at the boise fry company in boise the boise co-ops bitter creek ale house and the boise farmers market and the Ketchum farmers market in the summer
0: perfect thanks y'all you can find the full video on youtube at their gennaissance